Welcome to episode four of season two of Own the Future. On the latest episode, we have Rex Woodbury from Index Ventures, who also has a very good Substack and a weekly newsletter called Digital Native. Over the course of 30 minutes, we discuss the latest in Metaverse, Web3, and the creator economy. We wrap up the conversation by asking Rex what his favorite music, movies, podcasts, and books are. Enjoy the show. All right. Uh, today, we are privileged with having with us Rex Woodbury. I'm sure you guys have seen him on Twitter, Instagram, and the likes. Uh, Rex, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Um, Rex, where are you calling in from today? I am in the Bay Area. One of the last remaining people here. I have not yet moved to Miami or LA or New York, but... Um, <laughs> the dangerous streets of SF. Exactly, exactly. So I, I'm based here. Our team is split between London and San Francisco at Index. So I am part of the West Coast contingent. Well, Rex, I'm curious, like, have you seen a uh, resurgence in SF, SV culture? Are people moving back now that we're kind of heading toward the PCE post-COVID era? That's a great question. So it's May, late May as we record this. And I think, um, you know, San Francisco still feels a little behind New York and the rest of the country. I was actually just looking at a map earlier today where I think we are one of the few states, one of three states that still doesn't have um, or still has mask mandates. And so I think we're a little behind, maybe a little more cautious, but um, everything's trending the right way. And I think hopefully it'll be a great summer. Awesome. And are you guys going to be moving towards remote only or are you going to be going back in person, you think? We will be back in person. I mean, we're a pretty small team. You know, we really benefit from being together, especially for our sort of Monday meetings as a team. And then, you know, the rest of the week, I think we'll be trying to meet entrepreneurs in person as much as possible, whether that's uh, in the Bay or, or elsewhere. But I think, you know, part of the struggle during COVID has just been Zoom can't really replace that kind of going for a walk or coffee or meeting someone in person. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just to provide some context for the listeners, we'd love to hear your sort of personal story on on how you became an investor at Index. And yeah, we'd love to hear your founding story. Well, I think I approach an interest in technology kind of through an interest in culture. So I grew up really wanting to be in the film industry and fascinated with media and pop culture and kind of came to college thinking that I would be a film producer or director or something like that. And then somewhere along the way, I kind of realized that, you know, culture now is synonymous with the internet. And I got really fascinated with how people are communicating online and creating online. And and I started being a creator in some ways myself on social media. And so I started in later stage investing in consumer internet companies, then worked at a couple startups myself before coming to Index. And then here at Index, you know, I would probably frame my interest areas as that intersection of culture and tech. So I spent a lot of time thinking about online communication, about social media, gaming, the creator economy, different ways that people communicate and create online. That's what interests me. You have a, a very, I would say, like worthwhile checking out in, in a Substack um, newsletter slash your weekly. You still have a weekly cadence on Digital Native? Still doing the weekly cadence. We'll see how long I can keep it up. But uh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's called Digital Native. And I think it's kind of about that exact topic. It's like, you know, about people who grew up with the internet and how technology and, and our online lives are sort of blurring into the rest of life and inseparable from the rest of our lives. And I actually um, caught, you know, I think one of the more recent ones, I'm not sure if this was the last one, but you discussed sort of not only metaverse, but what's happening in the Philippines. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So I wrote about how people in the Philippines are earning income through play to earn gaming during the pandemic. So it's a really fascinating story. Basically, the kind of one minute summary is you can make money in some online games. And so 
They're called play to earn games. And probably the most famous example is Axie Infinity, which is a blockchain based game where you earn income by winning battles with your Axie, which is this cartoonish kind of creature. And so you can actually make money by, by playing the game. And during the Philippines, unemployment was double digits percent. I think in some places it was as high as 40%. And so a lot of people were out of work and they were looking for ways to make income. And so they turned to this game and they started earning two or three times minimum wage by playing this game for many hours during the day. And so it's a really kind of fascinating idea where it starts with people you know, playing games, but then all of a sudden people are having jobs in the quote unquote metaverse. They're you know, digital architects of buildings in these games. They're you know, fashion designers of clothes for avatars. It's just this really interesting harbinger of what the future of digital economies looks like. It's kind of you know, the intersection of the future of work and entertainment and content and just how digital lives are you know, bleeding into how we spend our time and make money. I'm curious, and I I don't know too much about this subject, but funny enough, I just watched Player Ready One on a <laughs> Saturday night. Yeah, this was being referenced way too often for me to not have watched that movie, and I'm sure you, you can appreciate that from a movie and uh, film writing background. I'm a huge fan, so yeah, I think I always say the best business books to read for consumer technology um, are books like Ready Player One or Dune um, or Snow Crash. Some of these sci-fi books that you know I think made me a more creative thinker in terms of what the future is going to look like. And you know, if you think back to when we were all young or you know our parents were young technology was way way behind i mean the idea of the internet or being connected with people all around the world was was still so new and the progress we've made in the last 25 or 30 years makes me excited for what the world's going to look like in 30 years and will it be ready player one kind of metaverse maybe but i think there are a lot of learnings from watching those films reading those books and thinking about you know these seem very futuristic but think how far technology has come in the last generation and, and how much further we can go at the pace that things are moving right now. The speeds that we're, we moved in the past are only going to get faster and faster as, as we've kind of been seeing. Kind of abstract a little bit. Take the Ready Player One, for example, because we're on that topic. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what from a maybe moral or just like not ethical, but just what's your perspective of the actual world shifting towards a digital experience? Mm-hmm. Because as depicted in Ready Player One, the external outside of the oasis is really this post-apocalyptic kind of world where the only time you kind of leave the the game is for eating, sleeping, and pretty much that's it. Yep. So I'm kind of curious, like, do you think we're moving towards that reality? I mean, talking 20 plus years from now. And two, is that something that you kind of are comfortable with as a person and being someone in a space that's investing and contributing to the players that are eventually going to build out that future or try to? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a hard question because you know, nothing's going to replace the real world. And and I definitely don't want the digital world to, to replace some of the richness of the real world. And Ready Player One's kind of a dystopian example because, you know, the real world has been sort of so damaged by climate change and geopolitical conflicts that, you know, the world, to your point, is so barren and desolate that a lot of people turn to the Oasis, this virtual world, as a place to go to escape it. And so I certainly hope that's not the way that our world goes. You know, I think the pandemic will be an interesting example as we kind of emerge post-COVID and a lot of us have spent the last kind of year in these um, online communities and in different places on the digital realm. You know, how do we integrate that with the real world? And my hope is that they're symbiotic. I mean, I hope that technology allows us to connect with people in new ways because, you know, maybe TikTok's algorithm shows me someone that they know I'm going to get along with and, you know, someone that I should be a friend with. And then I meet that person in the real world. So 
you know, in the best kind of most optimistic view in my mind is that, you know, these digital connections we have are just augmenting the offline in relationships and interactions we have, but there are definitely pros and cons to more of our lives being spent in technology. To pivot into then what it means to kind of connect everything in a more meaningful way from a digital economy standpoint to just a broader definition of Web3, what's your kind of take on that? What's the best case scenario, right, that that we could see happening over the next year or so? The best case scenario is if you think of kind of early social platforms, our real world friends were sort of the proxy for our online connections. So like, you know, MySpace and Facebook, we really interacted with people online because we already knew them offline. The power of these new social platforms, whether it's it's TikTok or Discord or um, you know, subreddits or Clubhouse, you know, they let us find people and find belonging in much more kind of efficient and meaningful ways. So, you know, no longer is the person who I'm a an acquaintance with at school, necessarily the best person for me to be spending time with, I'm able to connect with someone new online. And, you know, ideally, that'll lead to, to offline relationships. And I hope we don't lose some of the, you know, the real world in it. But also, you know, you have to remember that a lot of people are looking for belonging that they can't find in the real world. And the internet opens that up dramatically for them. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I got interested in technology when I was in college and I was closeted. I hadn't yet come out as gay. I mean, I really didn't know that many other people like me didn't really realize that there was a really vibrant queer community out there. And the internet is this amazing place where you can quickly find people like you. And there are so many different niche communities where you can find belonging and find connection. And so I think it's a really powerful thing and everyone wants that kind of connection and the internet just makes it more accessible. Definitely. And um, I mean, we talk a lot about the creator economy and kind of like this, obviously this mass pilgrimage to surgeons to online, since you are kind of, I guess you can consider yourself a creator yourself hundred percent, right? So being a creator yourself and also being an investor in the creator economy, what's that kind of dynamic like? Because it kind of, kind of feels like that a lot of companies that you're looking at that kind of build tools for the creator economy are actually relevant to you as a creator yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's certainly one way that I got interested in the space. I mean, you know, I always say when I was um, starting out as a creator on Instagram, I mean, it was much more in sort of like the influencer age of like mid 2010s where it was a little more curated and performative and it was just sort of an, a different ethos of social media. And so the only way really to monetize back then a community or a following like that was through sponsored posts. And so you're really just renting off distribution on your page to brands, you know, and it's a much less authentic way to do it. And I think since then, we've seen this robust economy form of much better ways for creators to earn income beyond just the sponsored posts. And so it's been fascinating for me just to follow that business model innovation. I mean, whether it's like Clubhouse now kind of forgoing ads to do tipping and future ticketing and subscriptions or something like Discord, you know, doing Discord Nitro or, you know, OnlyFans is a really interesting example of sort of locked direct messages. But there are just better ways to tap into your really, really enthusiastic super fans and earn income through that. So it's been fascinating to follow that. And then also, I just think, you know, being a creator is more accessible to everyone now. A lot of studies have shown that a lot of people think it's about fame and money, but it's also much more than that. Young people are drawn to being a creator because it's about creativity and self-expression and people are able to express themselves in new ways. Well, I'll go a step further. I think the part that that was missing prior and because of ad sort of driven algorithms, right, is the ability to be authentic and then cash in on that, right? And, and what you just described too is 
it's more about the actual relationship and the authentic part of that that then would allow or encourage people to pay for it right so so you get to actually as a creator be yourself and make products or services or content that then will hopefully attract the right followers and audience and, and consumers and then they pay for it rather than the platform just deciding what should be paid for and what's going to be at the top 10 or whatever the likes and and follows so i think that's the interesting dynamic too yeah i think people pay for things they value the internet is shifting that way you know i think there's a a statistic i read that in 2010 only 30% of music that americans acquired they paid for and so a lot of it was pirated and you know since then i think there's been this culture shift of just because i can get a film for free or a piece of music for free online doesn't mean i want to i want to support the creators that i admire um and i want to pay for art you can see that sort of in instagram's product evolution as well i mean it's gone from these sort of sponsored posts to stories are much more authentic and then there's the close friends feature where you can choose who has access to some of your content and creators were hacking that sort of by saying you know Venmo me 5 bucks or 10 bucks to get access to my close friends and that's kind of a similar model to what OnlyFans has done where you pay for exclusive levels of access and you know that's similar to you know Patreon or or to Substack for writing and so i think we are moving to this model where people value creation they value art and they're willing to pay for it and we're going to move away there's this massive sea change from advertising to commerce online and you know if you think about advertising has really underpinned this web 2 era you know the biggest companies and in in web 1 with google you know facebook snapchat instagram ads have really been the thing that have underpinned this whole economy and already you know digital advertising is about half of the global ad market i think advertising overall is about 100 or 800 billion dollar market commerce is a 20 trillion dollar market and it's only 10 or 20 or 50, maybe 15% digitized and so i think there's just massive room to run with you know digital transactions online micro transactions as we've seen in gaming these kind of digital economies forming like we were talking about with gaming in the philippines and the metaverse and so i think commerce is going to be the name of the game for the next 10 years i think it's really interesting because you brought the philippines again i was actually doing a little bit of research on this myself and can you talk a little bit more about the actual cost and setup process that whoever is investing in it these companies have to shell out to kind of set up the infrastructure necessary for these like philippine gaming rigs in um these emerging markets like what kind of upfront cost are we talking about? Yeah, so it's a really interesting example of sort of the future models of work and labor. And so there's this really interesting company in the Philippines called Yield Guild Games. And I wouldn't even say it's a company, it's a it's a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization. And Yield Guild basically makes it more accessible for people to play these play to earn games. So we talked about Axie Infinity, which is a blockchain-based game. Axies are little cartoonish creatures. To play the game you need 3 axes and each one costs about 100 bucks right now. So it's 300 bucks that, you know, a lot of people don't have to get going. And so what Yield Guild does is they buy up a bunch of these digital assets and then they lease them out to players and then they take a cut of earnings. So the player will take 70% or so, um Yield Guild takes 10% and then they actually have community managers who go recruit players who take 20%. And so it's this really interesting model of, you know, enabling people kind of almost like a, you know, digital real estate play where it's like they buy up land or assets and lease them out to people, but it makes it more accessible for people to earn income. And just as an interesting example of Gabby, who's the the founder of Yield Guild, has talked about, you know, for the last 100 years, capital 
has really been borderless. You know, the world has globalized and capital flows between borders. And unfortunately, that has the effect of mostly enriching the investor class, like people who have equity, which are usually more elite and affluent people. But people who are salaried workers who, you know, are part of the labor class have not really benefited from that. But now with the internet, you know, COVID has accelerated this dramatically. Labor is now borderless. You know, work is more remote. You can earn income from anywhere, anytime. And that just dramatically levels the playing field. And, you know, in this future kind of digital economy, if we ever have jobs in the quote unquote metaverse, labor will be just as fluid and borderless as capital. That's actually a really interesting point because as you were explaining, you know, the cost benefit in sort of the quote unquote labor side, the opposite end of that spectrum, one might argue, is Uber. Mm-hmm. Get them the car, lease them the car, you create the marketplace, the drivers do all the work and it enriches the investors, right? And, and I don't know if any of us has disclosures with Uber. Yep. That's sort of the argument against Uber. It just took advantage of the labor force, right? And it ri- enriched the investors. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, I really think. 10 years from now, the future of work is going to change dramatically. And I think this trickles over to into finance as well. Everyone's an investor, everyone shares in the upside, and the people doing the work will, will share in sort of the equity appreciating. An example of that, I mean, why shouldn't Uber's drivers own more equity in the company? I mean, to your point, they they really are the ones who are creating the value. And so, you know, what if for every Uber ride, a driver got, you know, one one thousandth or one one hundred thousandth of a share. I mean, those are sort of the the systems and and you know crypto kind of can underlie this economy, but there's actually a company called Fairment, which is doing exactly that, where they turn stakeholders into investors. And so, you know, maybe an Uber rider or driver or an Airbnb host can can share in sort of the equity that they help create. And this is similar to, you know, what uh, I know we've all talked about with NFTs and fandom and creators where being a fan of an artist, you can actually take an equity stake or, you know, help appreciate their work and and earn income for for your hard work as a fan. So, I mean, a lot of this is like, these are web three kind of principles around what blockchain will enable. But if you just kind of think from first principles around these questions of who are the people benefiting right now from value that's created, I think a lot of that's going to change and it's going to be a lot more equal in the future. And that's where, right, like tokens and coins could be really interesting and, and sort of iterations or different versions of a DAO could really impact everything that we just talked about in a positive way. Yeah, it's this shift away from gatekeepers. And, um, you know, is there a reason that record labels should exist and kind of own an artist's work into perpetuity? Probably not. I mean, these are really legacy systems that have predated a lot of the technology that exists today. And I think there's going to be this sort of massive re-architecture of creators, of finance, of who is a capital holder, and really all of it comes back to sort of work and how people earn money. You mentioned at the top of this conversation, your early affinity for film and entertainment related. I mean, if you go back even 100 years, film studios used to own everything, right? Not only rights to the work and content, but even rights to the actors and actresses. It's pretty crazy. You read some of the Hollywood books, right? And, And a lot of it, you can argue, is because of access to distribution because of the internet, quote unquote, right now, in theory, everybody can access anything, or at least that's the the thesis. And I think we're only going further in, in that territory, right? Which hopefully, yeah, democratizes the opportunity for all different types of creatives and creators. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to, there's this Barry Diller quote who I really respect. So for those who don't know, you know, Barry Diller was the ex-CEO, both Paramount and then Fox. Um, and then he 
created IAC and Expedia and a lot of other companies. And it's sort of this titan of, of sort of legacy media and, and really was ahead of his curve for the internet. But he had this statement in 2005, which has not aged very well, where someone asked him about you know the internet and, and how it would change Hollywood. And he said, there's not that much talent in the world. Like there are very few people in very few closets in very few rooms that are actually talented and unable to get out of those closets. And then he said, I think something like people with talent and expertise at making entertainment products aren't going to be displaced by 1,800 or 1,900 people coming up with their own videos that they think might be popular. And this was the same year YouTube was formed. And so I think it's a really interesting kind of example of legacy media and Hollywood. They didn't think that there was this creativity or talent in the world that was being restrained and, and the internet proved that completely wrong. And now, you know, we've seen TikTok even the more sort of better example now than YouTube in that it really is there's so much talent and creativity that just needs to be unlocked by distribution to your point. And that's why, you know, when you think about these new careers as creators or, you know, the way that we're consuming content and being entertained or making a living, it just continues to get more and more equal because instead of the executive in a Hollywood boardroom tapping a talent or saying, you know, this actor should be the person cast in this film and, and sort of choosing what culture is, we all get to choose culture. Well, I'll even add to that just to give uh, Barry Diller some slack, like back in 2005, though, think about how all of us may have perceived what a creative pursuit or being an actor or talent is. Meaning, mm -hmm. even if you go before our time, being an actor and actress was like a one in a billion to be famous. And then with internet and then web two with 2.0 with social and stuff, again, it just, it actually encourages more people to think and believe that they can be somebody or pursue these creative endeavors that 20, 30, 50 years ago, they would have been told that it's impossible. And then you fast forward to 2021 now. I mean, if you're born in the last couple of years or whatever, by the time you're three or four, you probably have your own TikTok, YouTube channel, some sort of outlet. And before you even hit first grade, you probably have a, a business running. Yeah. So I think yep. that's, the, that's the, the crazy part. And just from a macro standpoint, I think, yeah, just from even from the 80s, the 90s, even now, like decades that I've been part of, I know, Truman, you might not have even been around in the 90s. But yeah, you used to be told, you know, it's like impossible to get a record deal, right? It's impossible to be a band. It's impossible to be a, a musician, an artist or an actor and make a living. But yep. now yep. with access to info and distribution that's readily available like any of us can. Yeah. And that's an interesting point too of, you know, how much of it is education and people, you know, having the tools now to to learn how to create. Um, but I mean, I'm sure I'll have quotes from from last year and this year too that don't age well because even for me, I think the idea of what a creator is has broadened so much in the last 12 or 24 months. Um I think a lot of us, when we think creator, we still think, or or when we think YouTuber, you know, we think entertainment and, and sort of replacing Hollywood. But it's a much broader trend than that. You know, these are people who teachers are creators, and they're you know creating content and curriculums online. And you know, it's people teaching on places like OutSchool or Teachable or or Maven. You know, it's also uh, it's a horizontal trend, not a vertical trend. You know, there are so many niche kind of TikTok channels and YouTube channels for all sorts of things that you can imagine. That it's much more than just an entertainer or a comedian. It's really 
anyone who has differentiated individualized knowledge and, and skills and is able to create content with the tools available to them to share with people through equal distribution. Rex, I mean, you're always uh, keeping in, in the know of what's hot. Do you see, um, are there any specific one or two companies that you kind of have your eye on that are up and coming in the startup space, in the, specifically in the, either the metaverse or the creator economy that we should keep an eye on? You know, I've spent a lot of time recently thinking about you know, the metaverse to your point. And one company that we invested in that I'm excited about is called Gather. The website is gather.town. And basically it's it's a virtual gathering place for any sort of interaction for remote work teams, for virtual events, um, you know, for a birthday party. I mean, it's really just this way for people to have more serendipitous and playful interactions. It's a really delightful product and sort of a much more playful and joyful way of interacting online. So so that's one that I'm recently excited about. You know, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about Web3 and, and the future of what blockchain can enable for, for creators. And so that's spent a lot of time in NFTs and, and DAOs and DeFi. And so those have been interests lately. And then also, you know, just continuing, you know, we touched on it earlier, but this sort of sea change away from online perfection or curation in different more performative social media to new ways of more authentic sharing online. Yeah, I think TikTok's an example. I think Discord's an example, but I continue to think that Instagram is very sort of quote unquote disruptible in terms of people are looking for better, more organic and serendipitous ways to to communicate and, and share their lives. And so that's always kind of a persistent interest to the social part of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you saw, but I think debuted number one on the App Store, um, like the app Paparazzi. Yeah, Paparazzi. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So Paparazzi is a great example. Dispo, uh, Be Real, in France. Um, you know, these are all really interesting kind of new ways for people to be interacting more authentically. And um, yeah, I mean, I think they're they're great products, and so that's another interesting area. Rex, um, I mean, we think a lot about as Jesse and I, fellow entrepreneurs, kind of in similar spaces, this fundraising process kind of revolves around a evaluation framework that a lot of different VCs kind of have their own. I want, I'm we're curious if you have like a go-to framework that you use for evaluating a company. Can it kind of give us some insight into that process? Yeah, I would say you know, it definitely varies a bit by stage. So at Index, we're unique in that we're one team investing across seed, early, and growth. So we have three funds. We have a seed fund, Index Origin, an early stage fund, and then a growth fund. And so certainly it does change a bit depending on the stage. But I would say what's consistent through the three is, you know, the framework of product market team. And so for me, you know, it's kind of thinking, is it a big market? Are there sort of secular tailwinds and interesting macro shifts happening? I, I really love product and sort of have a design angle to product. Product. And so is there something unique about how the product is built or or how it's serving someone's pain point? And then, you know, probably most important is team. I mean, I think there are lots of quotes around around this that I, I won't, you know, attempt to say, but like it really does come down to the great entrepreneurs who are able to figure out, you know, great products and markets if you if you find the right people. And so for me, meeting entrepreneurs, you know, it's kind of asking a few things. Like one, I really want to see sort of clarity of vision. So can they paint a picture of what you know they want to build or what they want the world to look like and how they plan to to build something for it? So that's one clarity of vision. And then yeah, second is sort of contrarian thinking or thinking differently. Like what is the unique insight? So like, you know, depth of insight. I really am just drawn to people who have a, another level of insight or something that I might have not thought about before and and clearly are, you know, product visionaries and thinking through the future in a way that is different than everyone else. So I think at Index, that's what we're drawn to. It's really, it always comes down to the entrepreneur or it comes down to people who think differently and have a vision and then want to go 
you know, create in that vision. You mentioned insight. We always talk about internally before you can innovate, you have to have insight into your audience demographic, what you're trying to build. And a lot of times though, right? Like insight just doesn't come out of thin air. So it, it's a lot of reading, studying, learning, discussing, iterating, repeating, all that stuff. And I think one of the things that also stuck out when, when Truman and I first connected with you too, is like, you seem to have a very vast knowledge and, and sort of ideas around broader culture as well as technology and then how everything ties together and then from an investor POV. Having said all that, I have a couple of questions. Just curious to know where you pull your insight from, right? And I think we can get that out of a very quick uh, Q&A style. Out of curiosity then, what are you listening to these days musically? That is a great, I'm pretty mainstream in my music, I will say. Um, usually that means a lot of Taylor Swift. I think I'm maybe the world's biggest Taylor Swift band, and I think she's the poet of our generation, and I think just a phenomenal songwriter. So she's usually my go-to example when it comes to a lot of these concepts around creators and, and Web3, and I think she's done me favors by now re-recording her music and is a good example of an artist reclaiming her work. And so I think, you know, she's kind of building on some of these these trends. But this week, I'm I'm really interested in Olivia Rodrigo, and I'm a huge fan of her as well and her new album. So that is what I'm listening to musically. But, you know, I use Spotify's Discover Weekly playlist a lot. Um, I use a lot of the different playlists on Spotify. Fairly mainstream in my music tastes. All good there. Don't worry. I got a, I got a couple more questions to it. We're going to, we're going right. to pull full picture of Rex Woodbury. Okay. What about, what's your favorite, like, what's your favorite film of all time? I probably would say Parasite. Hmm. So I am a huge fan of Parasite. I think it is first just like a brilliantly done film. It's sort of three films within a film. It's the first third is kind of a comedy. The middle third is a thriller. And then the last third is kind of like horror, but also family drama. I love when a film can be incredibly entertaining um, and beautifully crafted, but at the same time be kind of a searing social commentary. And so I'd say Parasite for that. I actually saw that um, in the theater by myself. Nice. After reading everything about it and sort of the whole buzz, I'm like, I need to watch this without disruption. Yes, it's actually, yeah, I think that's a, a great point. I saw it in theaters too. And for those who haven't seen it, it's one of those films that's better experienced not knowing much about it. And so I went in knowing nothing about what to expect. And so I won't say any more, but it's definitely one where I highly recommend watching it. What about um, TV, Netflix? HBO Max has actually had some great series this year. I watched Veneno and It's a Sin, which are both sort of queer-themed um, series. It's a Sin is about this group of friends during the AIDS crisis in London, and it's really, really well done and moving. And then Veneno is set in Spain. It's actually based on a true story of sort of a trans icon in the late 90s, early 2000s in Spain and in her life. And both were some of the best content I've seen in the last few years. Those would be the two that come to mind. And then best quarantine show I've seen in the last sort of 12 months, probably Succession. I'm a huge Succession fan. What about a podcast? Obviously, we're doing one right now. Do you have a favorite podcast besides Own the Future with Truman and I? Definitely Own the Future. Let's see, I also big fan of Harry Stebbings and, and 20 Minute VC. Uh, he was a big part of sort of me getting both interested in, but also learning about uh, what venture capital is. And I love his entrepreneur episodes as well. I also really like Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best. I think that's a great one. And then The Daily every day just for news. That's my, my go-to. While you're an investor currently, it seems like you have a very in-tune POV on being a creator on the other side as well, right? So forget even like what the potential, you know, person's ideal job is. But I guess if there is like one quote unquote Bible to you, right? One book that sort of led you to this path and that you think has been very instrumental in your career. I, I really do think fiction is 
the best stuff to read. I, I do like some nonfiction and, and memoirs and business books, but I find that my most creative thinking or boundaries of thinking are pushed most with fiction. And so, you know, I think sci-fi has shaped a lot of my thinking as someone in, in the startup world and especially in consumer technology. So I'd probably say Dune, maybe if I had to pick one, maybe Ready Player One, but there's this whole sort of set of books, a lot of them from sort of like the 80s and 90s, Three Body Problem being maybe one of the more recent ones that just expand your mind in new ways. And so I would say spend time reading fiction. That's how you become a futurist. Exactly, exactly. And maybe, maybe two too kind of futurist or too optimistic or excited about new technologies. But um, but no, I mean, I think they help you think from first principles and painting a picture of the world in a different way than it is today. Big fan um, of fiction. I get yelled at a lot by my friends. I should start uh, switching to nonfiction and kind of re- read about more realistic things. But um, I'm telling you, it's really the key to kind of thinking and maintaining a creative imagination. So really relate to you there. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, joining us on the Zoom, Rex. And for the listeners, check out Digital Native on Substack. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll connect in person soon. Yeah, looking forward to it as the world returns to normal. I'll come down and see you guys in LA soon. Thanks for having me. 